Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Today is the feast of St. Teresa of Calcutta, and on this episode of Truth and Charity, Bishop Rhodes talks about the special prayer card Mother Teresa gave him, as well as one of his favorite moments spent with her. Then it's on to the annual Bishop's Appeal, a nationwide novena to protect human life, the Blessed Virgin Mary's birthday, and listener-submitted questions. If you would like to ask Bishop a question for a future show, just go to RedeemerRadio.com askbishop or download the Redeemer Radio app and select Ask Your Questions. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop, and today is the Feast of St. Teresa of Calcutta. Very special day. Yeah. Yeah. We actually talked about her a little bit last year, so if people want to go back and listen to that, that was uh, our eighth episode, actually, uh, on September 6th, 2017, and you can go find those in the archives and the uh, Redeemer Radio app or wherever you get podcasts or redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. But uh, since then, actually earlier in August, the Diocesan Facebook page the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend Facebook page posted a picture that you had talked about this story of your mom meeting St. Teresa of Calcutta and Mother Teresa at the time. Can you remind us that story? Oh, yeah. That's when we were on a pilgrimage and uh, it was with people from my first parish assignment in York, Pennsylvania. And uh, my mother was along. We were at a papal audience and I really wanted to get close enough so I could introduce my mother to Pope John Paul II. Though we had good seats, it wasn't possible. I was really disappointed because my mother was such a good, devout woman. I wanted her to meet the Pope. But anyhow, I didn't let on that I was disappointed. And uh, that afternoon, after the audience, I went up to take my mom and a few others up to San Gregorio, which is where I used to do my pastoral ministry, my pastoral work with Mother Teresa's sisters, the missionaries of charity. So I knocked on the door and wanted to show them where I served. And uh, the sister who answered the door, I knew real well. She was probably 
the one I knew the best. And she, she kind of whispered to me, Father, Father Kevin, Mother Teresa's here. Uh-huh. Should I go get her? Now, I said, oh, wow. Yes, please. So my mom didn't know. Sure enough, sister came down with mother. And, oh, my mother just started crying. I mean, it was so beautiful. And uh, so I always remember that. And, and the words of Mother Teresa to my mom, she said, thanks for giving your son to the church as a priest. And, you know, it was really, really beautiful. I had other opportunities to meet and speak with Mother Teresa. And I always knew she was a saint. I yeah. mean, her holiness was incredible. And so it's great to remember her today. It's just two years ago that uh, she was canonized. And... Uh, to be able to celebrate her and and her life. And I remember at the canonization, reading about the canonization when Pope Francis spoke about her life of service and her amazing uh, love for the poor, including the unborn and anyone who was abandoned or discarded from the very beginning when she had that call within a call to serve in the slums of Calcutta. And then it just grew into this worldwide mission where, you know, over 5,000 missionaries of charity serving the poor and abandoned around the world today. Uh, It all began with this uh, call within a call because Mother Teresa was already a nun. She was a sister of Loretto. Mm -hmm. She did her studies, I think, in Ireland. Of course, she's Albanian by birth, but um, she was a regular teaching sister and I think after making her her vows, she was assigned to teach at a girls' school, I think a high school in Calcutta. And then one day when she was uh, riding in a train from Calcutta to towards a retreat, she had this incredible experience of Jesus speaking to her, mm-hmm. asking her to leave the teaching to work in the slums of Calcutta to help the city's poorest and sickest people and the dying. Of course, she she had already taken a vow of obedience as a sister of Loretto, so she had to go through the process to be dispensed. And she was and had the permission and uh, had about six months of basic medical training. And she went into the slums and uh, just to help the unwanted and the uncared for. That was the beginning. She began a home for the dying, people who were destitute, who were just in the gutters, of the streets. That's why she was called sometimes the saint of the gutters. And then she founded the congregation because of these young women who, and some of them were her former students, and uh, who came and joined her. Or some were also uh, some of the former teachers. And then she founded a, a house for lepers and an orphanage and a nursing home and all these different things, health clinics and in Calcutta and, and, and eventually around the world, and including the United States. She first opened a house in uh, New York City. I remember the when the war was going on in Lebanon back in the early 80s, she went between the Christian East Beirut and Muslim West Beirut to help the children of both sides. I mean, she did so many incredible things. You mentioned this and i've heard other people say the same thing i I knew she was a saint you could tell that she was ever you know you just get this sense about her or a feeling or inspiration has that happened with other people that you've been around and be like yep this person is a saint pope john paul Mm -hmm. i felt the same thing both of them yeah they're the ones that come to mind yeah just exceptional 
yeah. people. And, and that's something that I think whenever we think of the canonized saints, it's, it's almost like a different level of holiness, maybe. We saying? speak of heroic virtue. Uh-huh. Yeah. There was something, I mean, it was so evident how close they were to God. Well, and then you also have a prayer card you were talking about that was signed by? Mother. Mother yeah. It's, it's on my bravery, and it's a, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been to the Cathedral Museum, there's a statue of Jesus scourged, and it's very graphic, and it's mm-hmm. hard to look at because it's all these wounds and so much blood. Well, that's what this holy card was that she gave me of that statue. It had Jesus scourged and crowned with thorns and very, very bloody. And there was a quote at the bottom that says, I looked for one to comfort me, and there was none. So that's a quote from Jesus. Mm -hmm. I looked for someone to comfort me, and there was no one. And Mother wrote three words, be the one, Wow! and handed it to me. So I really do treasure that holy card. Yeah. You brought up the museum, the Cathedral Museum. I know Miriam Schmitz has been doing articles for the Today's Catholic, highlighting some of the different things in there. Uh, one of the things that's in there that people can go and check out if they're curious is a prayer wheel from Mother Teresa. And uh, it has a quote on it that says, I can hear the music of your laughter of joy. Learn, my children, to be holy, for true holiness consists in doing God's will with a smile. And then it signed mothers it appears that she hand wrote this quote on a prayer wheel which i'm not exactly sure yeah we'll have to research that a little bit more but you know that quote is was wonderful because one characteristic of mother mother Teresa was was her joy yeah you know and also the sisters too they're laughing a lot smiling they really exude the joy of the gospel the joy of being disciples of jesus All right. Well, also another thing that is coming up this time of year is the annual Bishop's Appeal. Uh, The theme this year is the love of Christ urges us on. And how did that theme come up? Well, I just, you know, that's one of my, one of the sentences in scripture that I really like. I forget if it's the first or second letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. And I just thought, wow, that's a good, that's a good quote for for the Bishop's Appeal, because what is it that motivates us or inspires us to give? It's the love of Christ. Mm. It's the love of Christ that urges us on. You know, some translations of that are the, the love of Christ impels us. Mm-hmm. It's both Christ's love for us primarily, but then our love for Christ. You know, I think you could take it both ways. Yeah. When you think about the love of Christ urges us on, mm-hmm. Christ's love for us, our love for him. Right. Right. And so, do you hope that the Bishop's Appeal inspires people to be involved? Do you hope that it inspires people to support the diocese? Do you hope that it shows and shines a light on some of the different ministries that the diocese is able to be a part of? What's the goal? I think one thing, it shows us that we're united in mission, Mm -hmm. Um, all of us as the members of the body of Christ. This isn't just, I know it's called the annual bishop's appeal, but it's not just the bishop. This is the work of of our priests, our deacons, our religious, and our lay faithful, that we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're all called to the mission of evangelization. We're all called to the task of spreading the faith, of serving the poor, of education, of our children and young people. So I think when we talk about the, the, the annual bishop's appeal, 
This is one way we're, we're all trying to support the ministries and services of the diocese, and we do this together. Mm-hmm. And we're not only supporting programs and ministries of the diocese, but also of the parishes, because as I think most people know, that anything above the goal that's reached remains in the parish. You know, so that also helps what's happening on the local level. And of course, the parishes benefit from the ministries of the diocese. Sure. Everything from our Catholic schools office to our finance office to our tribunal, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about diocesan ministries and services, really they're services to the parishes primarily. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the different things that the appeal is able to support. You wouldn't possibly be able to list them all, but just some of the, the highlights and maybe some of the things that people wouldn't think of of being something that is funded by the diocese. Well, I think the um, if you know the structure of the diocese, we have various secretariats and offices. Mm-hmm. So they're funded, you know, the salaries, et cetera, and their programs by the Bishop's Appeal. You can take, for example, the Secretariat for Evangelization and Discipleship. There's just a lot within that secretariat that they're doing, everything from youth and young adult ministry to pro-life activities, marriage preparation, mm. uh, retreats, and there's just a lot of, of various things And just in that one secretariat, but also in our other secretariats. We have, for example, our uh, continuing formation for our priests and deacons, when we have our priest retreats and retreats and continuing education for our deacons, that's funded by this. Support for our retired priests, their pension, support for the education of our seminarians, though we also have a special collection at Pentecost to help with that because the Bishop's Appeal doesn't fund it enough. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, the formation of our clergy, we give support to Catholic charities from the Bishop's Appeal. We have various other services of of the poor, jail ministry, just trying to think off the top of my head. And then, of course, all of our educational stuff. You know, we have a training program for catechists. It's called Education for Ministry. We have continuing education for our teachers. We also do give help to our diocesan high schools uh, Mm -hmm. through the Bishop's Appeal, parish faith formation for adults and youth, so there's a lot of catechetical and spiritual formation activities that are funded by the appeal as well. So you get a flavor. Basically, it's everything we do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The tribunal, the business office. Yep. Does the diocese have very many or any, like, I don't know if you'd call them a mission parish where they might not be able to support themselves financially, but it's uh, kind of a something that the diocese is able to help support or kind of other parishes coming together to to help that? You know, some parishes have that where they have, they're twinned or they... Okay. uh, And some will help poorer parishes right here in our own diocese. Mm -hmm. But some also help parishes overseas in mission countries. As far as the diocesan level, we don't have a, a twin relationship with any other diocese, but rather there are times where we do contribute to special projects especially some of the dioceses or religious orders that have lent us priests, Uh where priests are serving here. Sometimes if they have a special need, we'll try to help them a little bit from some of my discretionary funds. Do we have parishes in the diocese that need help, that aren't able to financially support themselves? Yeah, there are some that struggle, I would say, Mm -hmm. to support themselves that have debts. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but, but we do have parishes 
in need. Mm -hmm. And the diocese has also, from the bishop's appeal, we give some monies for parishes in need. Okay. Yep. So if people are wanting information about it, you want to watch the video, you'd like to donate right now, you can go to diocesefwsb.org slash ABA for annual Bishop's Appeal. So coming up, I'd like to talk about a novena to protect life that is happening and answer questions that were submitted by listeners. So that's coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we are in the middle, I guess, of a novena, and maybe we should have mentioned this whenever it first started, but I just kind of learned about it and thought maybe you could talk a little bit about it. It's a novena for the legal protection of human life, a call to fast and pray each Friday from August 3rd through September 28th. So that would be nine weeks. So maybe before we get into this particular one, could you explain... I know you've mentioned maybe in the past, but the concept of a novena and why this is a, an important part of a Catholic prayer life. Yeah, it's a beautiful custom. It really goes back to the nine days that the apostles, together with the Blessed Virgin Mary, spent in prayer after our Lord's ascension into heaven in the upper room, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. For nine days, the apostles prayed and waited together with with our Blessed Mother. Mm -hmm. So that developed into this idea of, of nine days of prayer, what we call a novena, that's from the Latin. So there are all kinds of different novenas that we can find in, uh, that are customary. So at different times when there's a special need, like in this case, the US bishops call for a novena of prayer for particular intention. Mm -hmm. And Cardinal Dolan, who's the uh, chair of our USCCB Committee on Pro-Life Activities invited people to join in this special novena that uh, began August 3rd. It's every Friday, as you mentioned, Kyle, up until September 28th. And the reason for it was when Justice Kennedy announced his retirement from the Supreme Court, there were various pro-abortion groups who began lobbying the US Senate to reject any nominee who doesn't promise to endorse Roe v. Wade, mm -hmm. which is basically abortion on demand. Right. As a church, the USCCB, we don't endorse or uh, oppose particular nominees, mm -hmm. but we expressed, and Cardinal Dolan in our name expressed grave concern that uh, this is a distortion to subject potential nominees to a litmus test of support for Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we decided to have this prayer campaign so that we would pray that whoever is confirmed, and of course, we know that uh, we have Judge, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who's a Catholic, who's been nominated by the president. The prayer is that with the change in the U.S. Supreme Court, that there will be greater protection for every human being greater respect for life. And that's what we're praying for. So there's various prayers and educational resources on the USCCB website that one can use on uh, Fridays and also an invitation to fast on Fridays mm -hmm. for this intention that every human being is protected in law and welcomed in life. People can find more information about that novena and the resources that you mentioned available at usccb.org. That's usccb.org. 
org. Another thing that I wanted to hear a little bit about was Saturday, September 8th, will be the Feast of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Can you talk about what we celebrate for that feast day? It's interesting, Mary's birth, the nativity, we only have two saints in the liturgical calendar that we celebrate their days of birth, Mary and John the Baptist. Uh-huh. Usually it's the day of the saint's death. Hmm. And uh, and we also celebrate the day of, of John the Baptist's death. We celebrate we have a feast of his martyrdom. Right. And of course, we have the feast of Mary's Assumption. Mm-hmm. But they're the only two because they were so, because of their greatness, especially mm-hmm. the Blessed Virgin Mary. But then John the Baptist, too. Jesus said, There's no one born a woman greater than John the Baptist. So, really, the feast of the Nativity of Mary, I think, goes back to the sixth or seventh century. They consecrated a church in Jerusalem. Today, it's the, Saint, the Basilica of St. Anne. And of course, by tradition, that's the name of Mary's mother, mm-hmm. Anne. So it seems that this feast began of Mary's birth began to be celebrated at that uh, church in Jerusalem. But then it spread, and eventually to Rome. It was brought to Rome by Eastern monks. And then they started celebrating the Nativity of Mary in the West. And I think it was sometime in the Middle Ages that it really became a real major feast. Um, okay. Today, it's it's a feast. It's not a solemnity, so it's not the highest. Like the the assumption is a solemnity. This is a feast. It's like a second rank. Okay. And you know, it's interesting. Both in the East and the West, we celebrate Mary's birthday on September eighth. And you notice it's also with the Immaculate Conception that's uh, celebrated on the eighth of December nine months after the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, we celebrate the birth of Mary. We don't have anything in scripture about her birth, but there is an, uh, an apocryphal writing from the end of the second century called the Proto-Evangelium of St. James, which purports to describe the histor- historical event of Mary's birth. But uh, it's apocryphal, so we don't consider that the inspired word of God. But it's a great day when we know Mary was born. It's uh-huh. a great day to celebrate her birthday. Since you brought up that word, can you explain the word apocryphal? Yeah, it, there were a number of other writings in those first two centuries that the church never recognized as inspired by God, so they're called apocryphal because some of them are just legends. Mm-hmm. Now, some of them might have some true things in them, mm-hmm. but they're not, we don't recognize them as the authentic word of God. Okay. All right. Well, coming up, we've got a question about if Catholics should participate in non-Catholic worship services and much more. If you have questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. We've got more coming up here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and I'm asking questions that have been submitted for Bishop to answer. Our first question is kind of related to our topic that we were talking about earlier with novenas. Are novenas supposed to end on the day before an event or the day of the event? So I guess if you're having a specific yeah. thing that you're praying for, should it 
end of the day before or on the day? There's no set rule, but I think the normal thing is it ends the day before. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's my experience anyhow. Okay. Uh, Somebody texted us on the Holy Cross College text line. Is it a sin for Catholics to join in non-Catholic worship services? There's no prohibition of a Catholic, for example, attending a Protestant service. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you might be invited to uh, like maybe a wedding or a funeral that's in a Protestant church. Mm -hmm. And what do you do? Well, you can you can join in the singing and the praying, but what is not allowed is receiving communion in a non-Catholic church. That's forbidden by church law. So basically, one can attend a non-Catholic prayer service in another Christian church, but one may not receive communion there. Mm-hmm. Um, and also... One can't, one can't go to a Protestant service on Sunday and fulfill one's Sunday obligation. Sure. You have to go to Catholic Mass. I think if people are interested, especially with people who are in mixed marriages, and uh, there are times where we have ecumenical prayer services mm-hmm. where there might be morning prayer, evening prayer together, or some kind of a liturgy of the Word where there's, of course, no there's no common concelebration of the Eucharist. Uh So those are some things that are allowed. But the church has a uh, document called the Ecumenical Directory, which came out, I think, in 1991, but it gives all the norms. So when questions arise, sometimes they come into my office, I always look at the Ecumenical Directory uh, to find out, because sometimes things do come up. But I've been at, uh, I remember some years ago, for example, attending a wedding in a non-Catholic church, and the minister will invite everyone to come to communion. And, and even the one I was at said, oh, Catholics, you're invited too. So everyone's, the Catholics are looking around, what should I do? Well, no, they can't. They're not supposed to receive communion, even if they're invited to mm-hmm. do so. We also have to be, when it comes to these liturgical worships, we should be sensitive to the people and the clergy of where we're going, just as we expect people, let's say Protestants who come here to one of our Catholic churches for Mass, and that happens quite often, they should respect our norms Mm -hmm. that they should not receive communion. I know some Orthodox churches, they, uh, they, of course, they would have their norms. If we're guests somewhere else, we should respect their norms as we would expect Protestants or others to uh, respect our norms. Mm -hmm. And I guess... Going back to the question that they're asking, is it a sin for Catholics to join in non-Catholic worship services? It comes down to the question of join. If it's just participating in prayer, that's fine. Would it be a sin then if they did take communion? Is that something that we should... If one knowingly did so, knowing Uh that the church says no, then it would be sinful. And so, go to confession if that's the case in the past. Uh, What about... You mentioned Protestant churches, and we share a lot in common with our Christian brothers and sisters. What about, say, Jewish or Muslim or a, a Buddha service of some sort? Uh, is there is that a little bit different it as is. far as participation goes? Yeah, it would be because you can't join in prayers, for example, to uh, a deity that we wouldn't believe in. Okay. Now, so you'd have to you know you have to look at which non-Christian religions are you. Are you referring to? Uh-huh. Obviously, if you're at a Jewish synagogue or a Jewish temple, I mean, if they're praying the Psalms, uh-huh. that's fine. Obviously, we pray the Psalms. 
but there might be another non-Christian religion where their whole belief in God is different. It's not the God, the same God that we believe in. Mm-hmm. So going back to the idea of ecumenism and being ecumenical to, to reach out and, and how do we balance the idea of getting along and uniting on the things that we agree on, uh, but also realizing that there's differences between religions and they're not all equal and we're not all right yeah. <laughs> if we believe different things. How do we balance those two? Yeah, we have to avoid that uh, that uh, religious relativism. Like there's the idea that there's no truth or everything's equally true. Or they also call that religious syncretism, where you kind of mix everything together. Okay. Uh, so that's why the church is very careful with its norms to prohibit that kind of thing, which relativizes truth, as if Jesus and Buddha are are equal or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, no, we have to be very careful in that area. We look at, and the Second Vatican Council has two documents, one the decree on ecumenism, which is very important, and that has to do with our relationship with other Christian churches and ecclesial communities. But then it has a document on our relationships with non-Christians, okay. non-Christian religions, and that's called Nostra Etate. And that's a, a really important document because its teachings on Catholic Jewish relations are very, very important. Uh-huh. And it condemns, this. the fathers of the Second Vatican Council condemned any form of anti-Semitism. Sure. And that was very important to do. And in that document, it talks about elements of truth and sanctification in other religions. So in other words, there might be things in some other religions that are true, but other things that we consider false false teachings. We have to kind of look at that and say, okay, what are the elements that are true? Obviously, with our Christian brothers and sisters, there's a lot in common. Mm -hmm. You know, our belief in the Trinity, our belief in Jesus as the universal Savior, our belief in Scripture as the inspired Word of God. There's a lot that we believe in, that we hold in common. There'd be less that we hold in common, obviously, with Mm non-Christians. Primarily, non-Christians don't believe in the divinity of Christ, and they don't believe in the most holy trinity, which is the central mystery of our faith. But we must respect people of other religions, and we respect their religious freedom, but we always are called to uphold the truth of what we hold, what God has revealed to us in Christ. We're called to love our brothers and sisters of other Christian churches and communities and of other religions. But I do recommend people to read those two documents of the Second Vatican Council, the the Decree on Ecumenism and the Decree on Non-Christian Religions, and that's called in Latin, Nostra Aetate. That gives kind of the firm Catholic teaching. You can also read in the, actually, I forgot, I should just mention, read what the Catechism of the Catholic Church has to say. Uh-huh. If you don't feel like you can read the whole documents that are in the Second Vatican Council, which I recommend, the key passages are quoted in the Catechism under the part of the Catechism that deals with the Church. The Catechism has a section on the, all the articles of the Creed and where it talks about the church being one holy Catholic and apostolic, there you can see when it, especially under the church as one, it talks about our relationships with our separated brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. in Christ, other Christians. And then it also talks about the church's relationship with non-Christian religions. All right. And I suppose this might be 
more common for our parish priests dealing with on a local level other churches and and their pastors or leaders but do you get many requests to participate in interfaith activities and prayer services some i mean i've spoken at the uh to the jewish community in both fort wayne and south bend in south bend i think once in mm-hmm. in uh, in Fort Wayne, two or three times. So we have good relationships. Uh-huh. Yeah, very good relationship. All right. Well, you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have more questions about cardinals in the church and how the readings for each Mass are decided. Coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. And someone asked a bunch of questions about cardinals. Maybe I'll take them one (laughs) at a time. Does every country have a cardinal? No. Okay. Who decides? The Pope. Okay. (laughs) Can a cardinal get fired? Yes, but very, very uncommon. (laughs) And is there a set number of cardinals? No, but there is a set number of voting cardinals, because when I speak of voting cardinals, that's in a conclave, a papal conclave, to elect a new pope. Uh-huh. Now, the pope can always change this, but basically the idea is to have 120 who are under the age of 80. Okay. That's, that's kind of the norm, because once a cardinal turns 80, he's no longer eligible to vote in a conclave for a new pope. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, that question about uh, does every country have one? Pope Francis has really diversified the College of Cardinals. There's a number of countries that never had a cardinal before. You know, some of these smaller countries, poorer countries that now have cardinals. Now, it was already very internationalized under Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict, but it's become even a little more internationalized. And especially where Pope Francis has tried to highlight the church in areas where the church is persecuted mm. or maybe where the also where the church is just a small minority and they never had a cardinal the pope has named cardinals in some of those places so for those that maybe hear the term cardinal every once in a while and they're not really sure maybe are hearing it now for the first time what does it mean to be a cardinal other than what well, you mentioned voting if you're under the age of 80 well it really goes back to who who originally elected the pope were the priests of rome the Diocese of Rome, because the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. Mm -hmm. So every Cardinal has a church in Rome that he's the titular pastor of. It's not a pastor in reality, just he has the title. So it's the idea of the clergy of Rome still electing their bishop. But now, of course, the Catholic Church is worldwide. So the electors, the papal electors, are from all over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really kind of like the Pope's Senate, I guess you could say. The Pope will use them often as advisors. They will serve on different Vatican congregations where they help the Pope in the administration of the worldwide church. And uh, so cardinals will go fairly often, I guess, a few times a year to Rome for special meetings of the congregations that they serve on. So they do not only service of the local church where they're the bishop, but also they're serving the the worldwide church, the international church, by helping and serving in the Roman Curia, the the Pope's administration. Okay. You mentioned that 
a cardinal could be fired. And, um, it, that wouldn't be the terminology that we would use. Right. I mean, we just had the sad case and uh, where former Cardinal McCarrick, he was asked to resign, and uh-huh. he did. I guess that would be the more common thing. Okay. If, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, it'd have to be something that, you know, there's a scandal and a cardinal could lose his rank as a cardinal. Okay. Yeah, the Pope can remove that. All right. Another listener asked, how were the readings for each mass decided? How long have we been on the same three cycles? Can the readings be changed? And how about the readings for the divine office? Wow, a lot of questions there. <laughs> well, the readings for mass are contained in the lectionary. Uh-huh. Okay, and the lecture, the church's lectionary after the Second Vatican Council, the council fathers asked that the readings for mass be expanded. In other words, much more scripture should be used. Okay, and that's what happened. So, and I think that was a wonderful part of the liturgical reform that now we're hearing a lot more of the Bible in the new order of the mass that was promulgated by Pope Paul VI. So what happens is we now have, for Sundays, a three-year cycle of readings. Mm -hmm. Before, there was only one year. Okay. So now we have a three-year cycle, and at every Sunday Mass I'm talking about, and the Sunday Masses, of course, you have a reading from the Old Testament, normally the first reading, except in the Easter season, a second reading from the New Testament, and then a Gospel reading. And then every three years, we, we switch evangelists. Matthew one year, Mark another year, Luke another year. Mm-hmm. We don't have a special year for John, but John's gospel comes up on a lot of special feasts. So, for example, on Good Friday, we always hear the gospel of the Passion according to John. Uh-huh. Or every three years, like just these past this past summer, we heard the Bread of Life discourse from John chapter 6. Mm-hmm. That's kind of inserted here in year B. Even though it's the year of Mark, the, the church inserts this uh, four weeks, I guess, four or five Sundays of the Bread of Life discourse. But anyhow, I think the intention was to include much more scripture in the liturgy of the word at Mass. And then for daily Masses, we have a... a uh, it's the same gospel every year on a particular weekday, but there's a two-year cycle of the first reading. So there's, again, we're hearing more of the Old Testament, more of the letters of the New Testament, the epistles of Paul, for example. So we have a two-year cycle of daily readings. And then there are special readings for major feasts. And we also have in the lectionary readings for particular saints. Now, that's optional. You can just use the regular, ordinary, the priest decides. He can use the regular weekday readings, or he may choose to use a special reading that the church has has given for a particular saint. So anyhow, that's kind of a summary. Uh, you know, you could study this and look, study the lectionary, and we also have what's called common of saints for holy men and women, common for martyrs. So there's some options that are there uh-huh. that a priest has. I'll use options sometimes. If I'm celebrating Mass, let's say at a Catholic school, it's a particular feast of a martyr, I'll look at the readings of the day, and then I'll look at the readings for that martyr or from the common of martyrs, and I might say, oh, I'm going to use that because it, it's I can then preach on that and mm-hmm. preach on the martyr. So, so there's a lot of options that you have 
nowadays that wouldn't have been there before. So this is all since Vatican II? It's Correct. been consistent since it, then? or Yeah, the, the new lectionary, I think, came out in like 1969. Okay. And maybe the English translation, maybe in 1970 or 71. And I think it's also been some new additions since then. I forget what years. But it's really a rich treasury of sacred scripture that we Catholics now have in the celebration of Masses. So who was it that made the decision of what readings would go when and where originally? Well, there would have been a congre- the Con- Congregation for Divine Worship in Rome. I mean, it would have had to eventually be approved by the Pope. But uh. I think a lot of the work and the, they had liturgical experts and actually you had to also have those who would be good for liturgical for translations of biblical texts because you have to be very careful there uh-huh. so i think there was a lot of work that went into it and uh who the individuals who chose i don't know but it would have been probably from the roman congregation that uh proposed it to the pope who then gave his approval and then if there would be changes in the future if we said you know we need uh, more readings from First Peter, uh, yeah, and there or something like that. What what would be the process for making those changes? Again, it would go through the congregation for okay. divine worship. It would usually come up if a bishops' conference wants to make a proposal. Okay. I mean, we've done that. For example, in the United States, we propose this special mass that we have every year of a kind of a penitential mass for respect for human life, and it's often celebrated on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. So, mm-hmm. so we asked the Vatican if we could have this special mass with prayers and particular readings and we got the approval. Okay. So that can happen. And then what about the readings for divine office? Is that similar? Well, the readings for the divine office, there's basically a, for people who aren't familiar, that's part of the liturgy of the hours. Mm-hmm. It's called the office of readings or morning prayer or evening prayer have very brief readings. That was also something that was designed by the Congregation for Divine Worship. And we're actually working on a revised translation of that, but it's taking years to do that. But uh, so in the Liturgy of the Hours, there is also a lot of scripture. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the the readings that the the priests would do and and religious and many laity as well would do these morning prayer, evening prayer, things like that. And they don't necessarily coordinate with the mass readings. No, they don't. Right. That's on a one-year cycle? It's a one-year cycle for the the breviary, for the liturgy of the hours, correct. All right. And then also, just one other thing before we go, it's been kind of back to school time for a while now. Our elementary and high schools have been in session for for a while now. Any uh, back to school wisdom for us, for our, our Catholic well, school students? I can't believe they go back so early, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, even early or mid-August. But uh, I just sent my greetings and blessings to all those who are in going back to school. And uh, especially, you know, both those who are attending our Catholic schools and also our students who, who go to public schools and welcome back to their religious education in the parishes. That's mm-hmm. important. And I always enjoy throughout the year getting opportunities to visit our, our grade schools and our high schools, our high schools every year. And I'm looking forward. I don't know where the first one is. I think, yeah, St. John's Goshen is celebrating a particular anniversary. I okay. think that's one of my first ones. Yeah. All right. So. Well, thank you again, Bishop, for joining us for another episode of Truth and Charity. Uh, Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, 
and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. God bless. Join us next Wednesday at noon for another new episode of Truth and Charity. With the school year in full swing, Bishop Rose will talk about the special mission Catholic school teachers have and how it's similar to a calling all the faithful share. Then it's on to the upcoming National Encuentro Gathering in Texas and how it will strengthen Hispanic ministry in our diocese. Bishop and Kyle will also talk about a couple upcoming Marian feast days, a Catholic word of the week, and the show will wrap up with Bishop answering questions submitted by listeners. If you would like to ask Bishop Rhodes a question for a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, which is also where you can hear any of our previous almost 60 episodes. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.